Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what big wireless does. They charge you a lot. We charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Today on Truth and Movies, the dead rise again in the belated Zomcom sequel Zombieland Double Tap. You'll be the first to die, but I like your enthusiasm. Director Olivia Sayas is discontent with digital content in the French publishing drama non-fiction. And in Film Club, Maggie Chung plays herself in Sayas's film within a film drama Irma Vep. I like latex. Latex? <laughs> latex? Like plastic. Oh, rubber. All coming up in Truth and Movies, a Little White Lies podcast. And here we are. Welcome, movie truthers, to another episode. It's Michael Leader here, sitting across this week from David Jenkins. Hey, hey. And Elena Lazic. Hello. Elena, welcome back. It's been a long time, I know, it feels I missed like. You guys. How have you been? Um, not bad, yeah, very mm-hmm. well. So, the LFF, the London Film Festival, has just finished. Do we have highlights we can share with the audience? I thought, in general, it was a very good one this year. Mm, Lots of top stuff. Any standout films? I went along to the uh, the closing gala, which was The Irishman, the new Martin Scorsese film, mm-hmm. which is, I think is out coming out on Netflix in like beginning of November, which is good. It had been in the New York Film Festival and it had had received these kind of rapturous rave reviews there, and I'm still having to let it kind of percolate a little bit longer I think because it's there's a lot in there and um, it's a big old film runs at like three and a half hours and it covers 60 years of, of ground of this uh, of this chap who played by Robert De Niro Frank Sheenan who's a kind of mob lieutenant who is kind of divides his time between a mafioso played by uh, Joe Pesci and uh, Jimmy Hoffa who is like a union boss played by Al Pacino I'm sure we'll cover it on the pod on the relevant so, week, yeah. but the, the the thing I will say is Al Pacino in particular I thought was was extraordinary in the film. And <laughs> I know you're never meant to think like, oh, I wish X director had made this film instead of that film. Because, you know, you've got to review what has been made, not as what, what has not been made. But I couldn't help but think, oh, I would have loved a Pacino-Jimmy Hoffa film with him as the sort of central player rather than... I mean, De Niro's character is the kind of linchpin of the film and he's maybe a little less interesting than than the other two characters but still a very good film that's out really soon isn't it it's coming yeah there's a sort of limited but sort of wide release coming in early november and then it's yeah. on netflix end of that month yeah, so yeah. and it's three and a half hours long right? yeah but you know if you've seen goodfellas or casino i mean casino's three hours and that mm-hmm. absolutely whips mm-hmm. by you know so it's a little bit more laconic than the usual 
Scorsese film. I mean, you know, Wolf of Wall Street was, you know, it was very kind of snappy, snappy, dramatic. Even though this one has got is a little bit more pensive, I think in tone, it still rattles along. I can't wait to see it. Ellen, did you see anything? Um, I didn't see The Irishman, Mm -hmm. um, but I saw Bad Education Uh um, from the director of um, Thoroughbreds, and I loved it. Like. It's actually hard to talk about without spoiling it too much because there's uh, obviously it's the film starring Hugh Jackman and everything that unfolds is just incredible when you know who Hugh Jackman is. Like it's just it just feels like he keeps making these films where he's trying to tell us who he is and like this one is like yeah this is me this is me yeah not literally and he's so good in the film and he he gets to play such a complex character like he plays this guy who who seems to be just a perfect person, like just a genuinely great person, but he's got some secrets. If that's not Hugh Jackman, like I don't know who that is. This film is like really playing with his persona as this very like nice man who like loves everybody and is always enthusiastic about everything. And it's it's so brilliant. It's funny because it's about like uh, money and corruption and things, but I found it so emotional and, and human. And because it's about all these people like being greedy, but you. I haven't seen many films like this that actually make you care for them. Obviously, it's awful everything that they're doing, but you actually care for them, and it's so sad. I was kind of blown away by it. That's terrific. I can't wait to see it. Thoroughbreds, I thought, was quite cold. This sounds like something different. Yeah, exactly. For like, I was Finley. very surprised. I expected something very like you know clinical, mm-hmm. but it really isn't like that. Wow. We have two recommendations here from listener Paul Reeve. He, who is, he says, LFF is always a highlight of the year for me, a great chance to see films I know nothing about, hopefully with the director there to tell us more about it. I particularly enjoyed Monos, a gripping and visceral oh, yeah. story of teenage soldiers in Colombia and also the style and subject of The Last ma- Black Man in San Francisco. Hopefully you'll be covering these when they get UK released later this month. Yeah, they're both out really soon, those mm-hmm. films. I think in the next two, three weeks. Yeah, yeah. and yeah. I think both set for this very podcast, mm-hmm. I believe. Anyway, that's the London Film Festival. David, you've also been busy with other things as well. We have an interview coming up later in the show. Yeah, yeah. There's another film coming out, a slightly smaller release, a film called General Magic. It's like a documentary about a Silicon Valley 90s tech startup all sort of nerdy guys in thick glasses and uh, fish t-shirts and eating cookies for breakfast, lunch and dinner. And it's the story of this company who made the first palm top uh, <laughs> laptop, you know, like a kind of handheld... Like a PDA. T- t- PDA touchscreen device. And in the kind of history of Silicon Valley, General Magic are like super important, but the kind of layperson has probably never heard of them because their rise was very very quick and their fall was even quicker so I met one of the the guys who worked there a guy called Tony Fidel he went on to invent the iPod and and create the iPod and co-create the iPhone so parlaying all his uh, experience in the, that we see in the film into making these very kind of revolutionary devices. That so. sounds terrific. We'll hear more about that later in the programme, but first we should deal with this week's new releases. Up first we have Zombieland Double Tap. Ten years after the first Zombieland comes this sequel that reunites what is now something of an all-star cast. Columbus, Tallahassee, Wichita and Little Rock, that's Jesse Eisenberg, Woody Harrelson, Emma Stone and Abigail Breslin respectively, all moved to the American heartland as they face off against evolved zombies, fellow survivors and the growing pains of their snarky makeshift family. Welcome back to Zombieland. It's been ten years since the outbreak. Oh my God, we're back again. Let's get you up to speed. Columbus formed an unlikely alliance with Tallahassee 
On the road, they met sisters in crime, Little Rock and Wichita. Columbus fell in love with Wichita, and Tallahassee became the father Little Rock never wanted. All of this resulting in a loving yet highly dysfunctional family. For survival, they live by a strict set of rules. Like rule number 25, shoot first. Oh my god, I'm so sorry, I'm Columbus. Madison, is this your dad? But this year, the rules will change. This new kind of zombie, stronger, faster, better adapted to the hunt. There's only one thing we can do. Group sex. Oh. Right? <clears throat> You'll be the first to die, but I like your enthusiasm. Let's kick some dicks. The trailer for Zombieland Double Tap there. Elena, do we need this sequel? Is there much excitement for it? I, well, I don't know if there was much excitement <laughs> for it. I hadn't seen the original film, so I watched it for this podcast. And, you know, it is what it is. <laughs> and then I went to see the second one, and it's basically the same movie. So I don't know. I mean, maybe there are people who are nostalgic for the first film that actually came out a whole 10 years ago. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I obviously I wasn't one of them because I wasn't a fan of the first film. But it's just so strange because... Um, so there are all these jokes, obviously, in the first movie, and... Um, Apparently, they're classic jokes now because in the second film, they just redo them, uh, supposedly, I think, for the sake of uh, nostalgia. Mm -hmm. But because, one, I don't find them funny. And second, I just watched the film two days ago, so and the first film. So it it doesn't feel like nostalgia for me. It just feels Mm -hmm. like they had no new ideas. And so they're just retreading the same sort of jokes, except removing some offensive ones and adding differently offensive ones. <laughs> the, the film back in 2009 was moderately well received and successful. Right. I think everybody involved went on to bigger and greater things. In fact, look at the poster and it's billed as from the director of Venom who is the director of Zombieland as well. So they're even billing Ruben Fleischer differently mm. now. But it was still at this time where zombies were having their moment with The Walking Dead on television and it felt, even though it was later than Shaun of the Dead, somewhat radical for a mainstream Hollywood comedy to be doing a zombie comedy. You've been on this show before talking about horror. Mm. Is this at all an interesting spin on the genre? No, (laughs) I don't think so because it's like, obviously, you know, we've just heard in the trailer that he has all these rules for survival, which I guess, you know, is sort of interesting. Like, he's this nerdy guy who has, I think, watched zombie movies and things, so he knows how to deal with them. But apart from that, like, it's just the actual rules on how to kill zombies are kind of basic and random. And you just wonder, like, why don't they, how hard is it? Like, mm-hmm. you can just go and kill all the zombies, surely. And, and in the 10 years that has passed, how are there still zombies? Like, surely they could have just killed all of them? Mm-hmm. I mean, that mm-hmm. was my first thought when I watched the film. But I don't know. It's just like, yeah, it's like all these tropes that are, instead of being treated as like, you know, because I think the, the potential of the zombie movie is either, you know, you can do social commentary obviously we've seen that with the Romero films but also you could just do like something that's actually really scary like one of my favorite zombie films is uh, 30 Days of Night which Mm. I think is brilliant and underrated but that's generally scary and like you know it's awful and like the 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 idea of like people you love being transformed which is sort of touched on in in those films is just not it's kind of, everything in the in the Zombieland films is just kind of ironic, so you just don't really care about anything, which mm-hmm. I think is a shame because the concept of the zombie is already like obviously far fetched. So if you're adding irony, uh, sort of ironic engagement with that on top of it, it just it just makes it a bit like mind numbing, really. David, we were just talking earlier. You reviewed this 
in one of your previous lives. Uh, you reviewed the first Zombieland in, in one of your previous lives. What did you give it? Mm, it was probably a three star. Uh-huh. I think I'd give everything a three star. <laughs> um, I sort of remember it being sort of passably okay with a few few bits and bobs in there and a few re- sort of self-referential things that I, mean, I think it maybe felt more unique at the time. But mm-hmm. going back to what you were saying about nostalgia, how can we be nostalgia for something that we've completely forgotten, you know? Mm. <laughs> and that just makes me think, well, maybe there is someone who is nostalgic for it, and that is director Ruben Fleischer. <laughs> it strikes me as maybe, you know, he had the sequel raring to go, the original didn't do the numbers that were expected or wasn't as successful enough to maybe warrant a sequel at the time. Then he goes off and does Venom. It's this huge box office success. And then, you know, they're like, Reuben, baby, <laughs> what do you want to do? You've got a carte blanche here. So he's like, well, I've got this thing in my drawer that I'd love to clear out. And uh, this is very kind of, you know, conspiracy theory-esque, I really realise. But the film is so, like, unnecessary mm. and doesn't serve any audience or any any kind of cultural need mm. or doesn't have anything, even within its own world, have anything original to offer it's pure kind of rehash you can imagine had it come out like the year after Zombieland it would have been a kind of oh yeah you know with the sort of vague memory of that in our mind we can kind of imagine this plot went on a little bit further Mm -hmm. but with that 10 year chasm in the middle you just think what could they have not have done something with this (laughs) Mm -hmm. the weird thing about this is there's no concept. There's no, like, idea mm. behind mm-hmm. it. You know, like in, in Romero, each sort of iteration of the zombies is a slight change. And mm. by the third one, they're almost being... Domesticated. Uh, domesticated, almost. yes. And um, there's a vague hint at the beginning that it's going to be more like that because mm. they say, yeah, the zombies have changed. But you get into the film, it's like, no, they, they kind of haven't really. No, and yeah. even even the sort of, in you know, what they mentioned there, this kind of, this new sort of super breed T-800 hunting zombie that doesn't really mean anything in the no. film. There's, they, they don't cause any sort of special threat or anything, and you know, no, nothing happens to anyone. I actually saw the, um, Zombieland 2 with uh, friends who told me that they were fans of the first one when they were, 10 years ago when they were kids, and they watched it like repeatedly. So for them, it was a big deal. So there are, I think, fans out there and of they like the first Zombieland. Well, no. <laughs> <laughs> so I can obviously believe that they were fans of the first one, but... They're ten years older now. Like they might not be interested in Zombieland too. If you, especially if you just make it the same. If you make it like a sort of grown-up version, like there are so many ways this could have gone to be like interesting. Like, I mean, in the space of ten years, which the film in the film it's also been ten years because I guess I mean we can't lie. The actors are clearly ten years older. Even though Jesse Eisenberg doesn't. <laughs> doesn't look any different. No, um, they could have done so many things. Like maybe one of them could have died. Like they, they could have. I don't know. Like so many things could have been happened and, and they just try to to tell us that oh they're just the same i'm like how is that possible 10 years like they're just the same as they were the last of- but that's the intriguing thing one of the the things that i remember quite liking about the first one was the cast they assembled felt like they brought in an indie comedy cast apart from woody harrelson they were up and comers you had abigail breslin who was in little miss sunshine jesse eisenberg just coming off social network and emma stone 10 years on Thinking of the ups and downs, the rising and fall of these these stars, has Abigail Breslin been in anything in the last ten years? I actually had to look up her IMDb. She's, she's been in a few bits and bobs. Emma Stone has had how many Oscar nominated and winning roles <laughs> since then? Jesse Eisenberg has been Lex Luthor in that time and been and gone, and Woody Harrelson is still there pumping out the films. How, how do they perform? Do they even sit on screen in the same way now? Emma Stone is a weird one, I think. 
I don't know about you guys, but like, I'm not a massive fan of her kind of, since she's sort of been thrown into the limelight as this great actress and has got all these Oscar nominations, I've never been that interested or impressed by those big performances she's given. I recently like caught up with some of her films earlier in her career where she was more of a kind of comic support player. Like, um, there's this movie, The House Bunny, Mm-hmm. Have you ever seen The House Bunny? I have not. It's really good. It's about a, a playboy bunny who moves into a, a university dorm and basically makes the fellow f- women in the dorm more fun and less nerdy. And, and Emma Stone's one of the nerdy girls and she's really funny in it. And um, and in this film you have like a similar character played by Zoe, Zoe Deutsch. I don't know how actually... Right. I, uh, Zoe Deutsch. Zoe Deutsch, yeah. yeah. Who is this kind of blonde bimbo kind of thing who, who is sort of survived by um locking herself in in a in a big freezer in a in a in a mall and um i actually think she's yeah. like the best thing in the film because she's agree. actually the the only one who seems to be like doing something mm-hmm. and like trying to build a character trying to act trying to be funny mm-hmm. it's quite cruel how she's she ends up being the butt of all the jokes in yeah. the end by the other guys but then emma stone used to you know, was so great in those kind of roles and made so much of them. And mm-hmm. it's like Zoe Deutsch is like taken right. over from that. And and I just felt Emma Stone in this film. She's like they've like said, oh, okay, you can wear your your leather bomber jacket and your tight jeans, and nothing's going to happen to you. You're not going to have to like have any goo put mm-hmm. on you, or you're not going to have to fight anyone. And you, she doesn't really do yeah. anything in the film. That's a shame. She didn't even do that much in the first one, but she does even less in this one. I think you know you you reminiscing about Emma Stone's supporting comedy roles reminds me of I wonder if you've seen this film David I don't think you have The Ghosts of Girlfriends Past I have seen it she's great in that as The Ghost of Girlfriends Past because I I recently rewatched all Matthew McConaughey films right Uh, she is the kind of mad girlfriend and yeah she's incredible in that in that strange rom-com remake of uh, Christmas Carol yeah Yeah. (laughs) good film I'm going to watch that I'd recommend that Eleanor yeah one of the only things people remember about the original Zombieland apart from those people who've watched it many times as kids is the Bill Murray cameo does this one serve any surprises like that that's maybe one thing that can tempt people into the cinema is that already a spoiler I mean on, on this list there's already Dan, the Acro- Dan Aykroyd <laughs> yeah. as himself yeah I guess there sure. is yeah you know if people stay post credits there's a little fun thing nothing in the actual main body of the film though mm-hmm. a little addendum that's you know there <laughs> well let's uh, you know cut off the head to finish Zombieland forever let's put some scores on it in anticipation enjoyment in retrospect Eleanor um, I mean anticipation I, I don't know two because I, I didn't want this I mean I don't yeah I wasn't expecting this film I didn't care about it enjoyment the same because I, I actually found it more grueling than the first one because there, there are some jokes that are just not funny and there are some really, really funny one-liners that I think whoever came up with them like deserves the medal. But most of the time, the jokes are just not very funny, and there's nothing worse than watching a movie it's that's nas- not actually nasty funny. Nasty humor. It's, yeah. it's written by there's the guy like, who did Deadpool, so it's mm-hmm. got that kind oh, of right, like. Oh right, okay, well that makes sense. <laughs> you know. I mean, there are some like offensive jokes, like as you said, the Zoe Dutch character is like it's just so you know offensive, um, but. Even the ones that are not very offensive are not very funny. So I was just like, oh, God, this is embarrassing. And also all these actors are, like, pretty big now. And so to see them in this film, I just think, like, oh, what were they thinking in this moment? Like, how is it to be in the studio and, like, on the set doing this film 10 years after the first one and now they've moved on so much? So, yeah, it was kind of, like, very depressing in that sense. So I would say enjoyment, like, I don't know, one. 
and uh, in retrospect, I don't know, two to be nice. Um, it's not that bad. There are worse films, but I wouldn't watch that again. <laughs> David? Two, two, one. I mean, it was like, actually, no, one, two, one. Oh. <laughs> but you gave the first one three stars. I know, I know, I know. But, I mean, there's even a bit where... Woody Harrelson has all these like little catchphrases when when they're about to go and kill some zombies he'll be like let's x some y or something you know mm. and um there's a bit of like oh you really need to refresh your catchphrases and it's like yeah you yeah. do really need do. to refresh the whole thing <laughs> you need to yeah. just, like well that's Zombieland double tap uh, up next we're going to go from double tap to double v which is the french title <laughs> of our next film nonfiction Alain, a successful Parisian publisher struggling to adapt to the digital revolution, rejects the latest piece of veiled autobiography from author Lenard. But little does he know, Lenard is having an affair with his wife, and soon events force them into confronting their double lives in a comedy of arts, affairs, and midlife crises. I must say, this is a strange film. (laughs) The first scene starts, and you have beautiful, compelling French actors talking at length about the switch from print to digital. And I think this is, oh, this is interesting. It's setting up its stall in the first scene and then the plot will kick in. But no, the whole film is that, (laughs) right? In a good way, I think. (laughs) You know, Olivier Assayas is a director who is, um, you know, he's really plugged into the kind of shifts and currents of uh, of modern culture and technology and is interested in, in discussing these ideas or at least placing these fictional dramas into the context of how the world is changing and how and how people's jobs are changing and how art is changing and how people how we consume art is changing. I guess in if you look back over his career he does various different types of movies and this is one of his more kind of like literary intellectual after dinner conversational pieces which he does alongside these historical almost sort of thrillery dramas and um, he's already made another film called wasp network which was in the london film festival about cuban dissidents so it's like a very very completely different prospect to this you know it's very french film mm-hmm. <laughs> um and um i've read some reviews of it that sort of maybe complain a little about the fact that it feels like a slightly older guy griping about how his sort of nice, cosy, analogue, tangible world of art and literature is kind of falling away from him and, and sort of ushering in this new world of of ephemeral digital things and marketing people are sort of taking over the, the conversation and the actual medium of how we write books and how people read books is actually changing what those books that are written are. And... Um, it sort of interweaves all these sort of questions into this almost like a kind of bedroom farce where you have one guy who's friends with another guy and he's he's sleeping with his wife and he's got a girlfriend and the girlfriend's got you know is working somewhere else and it's a sort of little cross section of literary bourgeois paris and so juliette binoche is the publisher's wife and she wears these incredible pullovers and her job is as a She's like a, a sort of lead SWAT team. Oh, the, the running yeah. gag is that everyone thinks that she's, she's playing a cop on a t- on a TV show. And she but corrects she's, them. She's yeah. not a cop. She actually has a different rank. Yes, yes, a different role. And and it's real kind of like lowbrow TV filler kind of stuff mm-hmm. that she's in. But she's got a sort of measure of fame from that, and I think she she sort of uses that to sort of keep herself within this sort of literary circle. 
But I think she's really funny in the film. And in a way, like this, the film reminded me a lot of um, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, the mm. Tarantino film, because. <laughs> Because, <laughs> you know, all the characters are in a way like mouthpieces for the director and the director's ideas about culture. And I think that maybe Esaias does a little bit more to conceal that in the way that this, the drama plays out in a more realistic way. And I think he's sort of tapping into more realistic emotions in in the kind of humiliations that, that the author Leonard goes through when he's has his book rejected and then he's he's a, you know there's a Q&A event where he's asked all these awkward questions about his how he kind of processes the, the his real life and and transforms it into fiction and the, the sort of ethical moral imperatives behind that. I think there's a lot going on in the film. I think if people find it like intensely smug, I would sort of agree with them. Mm-hmm. But it worked for me. <laughs> I think mouthpiece is the right word here. You interviewed Olivia Sayas for the, for the magazine, right? And if you read that interview, which, which is up on the website now, his answers could just be pasted into the screenplay here and be one of the monologues that one of the actors gives. And it is that, as you say, it's a farce where there's bed swapping, but then the morning after, while they're getting dressed, they're saying, and what about that e-book? They're talking about (laughs) the e-book revolution and, and like, you know, publishing companies going through, like, massive changes. That's why when you you said that it's actually quite concealed, the the mouthpiece element, I'm like, I don't know if I agree, (laughs) because... um, because I a speak, bit more. yeah, yeah, but obviously because I I speak French, so I don't need the subtitles. But like I could, when when they have this big conversation at, at the house of the publisher, I think, and all these friends are there, and they're all talking about publishing. I mean, it doesn't feel realistic, but I don't I don't mind. It's not criticism, but it just absolutely doesn't feel realistic to me. But that's kind of the fun of it. I think it's like um, kind of very artificial and sort of intellectual, but I think interesting. Like I mean. Imagine a director making a film about that actually lays explains the issue of digital content. Imagine if people watch this film and they understand the problem and, and then they start thinking about it. I mean, I don't think that's his intention. I don't think he's trying to like teach people, but I think it's very valuable to have that out there. If you have no other reason to see this film, but you're curious about like the state of like digital publishing, which I guess in this film is obviously he's talking also about cinema. Like he chose publishing just as a way to pretend, I guess, that it's not about the film industry. But like if, if nothing else, it's a very interesting way to understand the issues because you just sit there with all these beautiful French actors and very funny as well and sexy explaining to you like the, the challenges of the digital era. And it's kind of fascinating. <laughs> it is very engrossing in its way. You know, mm. Guillaume Canet and, and Julia Binoche are just some of the best actors you can have in a film like this, and it's a gorgeous-looking film. Guillaume Canet is uh, always underrated, I think, because yeah. he's obviously in France. He's also very, very popular, like uh-huh. in popular films. You know, he makes the Little White Lies movies, yeah. but he's also like just an incredible actor. And I, I don't know if people really acknowledge that. Like, mm-hmm. I think he's incredible in everything I've ever seen him in. It did make me think about halfway through. There'd be riots in the streets if there was a British version of this made. Exactly. The amount that classes on everyone's mind, the sort of smugness and the upper middle class bubble this film is in. And if there was just who would you even cast in a film? This would be Emma Thompson and <laughs> Hugh Grant. Hugh Grant. It's Notting Hill, basically. <laughs> <But> Notting Hill <laughs> without the romantic. It's plots. Notting Hill, but they're talking about like having e-books. closed yeah. the bookshop. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. But is that what Olivier Sayas can do? He can pull off this because he's been making these self-reflexive films within films. Before, you know, casting Maggie Chung in so many films because, and he was with her at the time, and uh, same with Clouds of Silmaria, which was it proved or was it um, apocryphal that Juliette Binoche took the role in the Godzilla movie as research for Clouds of Silmaria, in which she plays an actress taking a, a Hollywood <laughs> role? But that's what he does, right? It's these, this 
puzzle box structure of his films. One of the things that came out of the interview with him, I'm not sure how much I included of it, but like we did talk a lot about sort of digital culture and these questions about technology. The questions that people are asking now are probably very different to the questions that are addressed in this film. When you're doing something that's so contemporary and so you know dealing with this very specific moment in time, it sort of it becomes instantly nostalgic. And he was saying that even when he was writing it, between writing it and filming it, you know, he he could have been constantly updating it because things were constantly changing and like ideas were changing and ideas were developing and technology was moving on during the process. So it's a film that sort of, you know, you have to just take the moment and just run with it like and say, this is going to be about this specific time and these specific characters. And it reaches a point where he, he kind of makes it knowing that when it's seen like six months later at a festival, it is going to feel a little bit out of date. I mean, you have all these weird things now where people are like, oh, you know, something you read in so many reviews now is like, oh, this is one of the great films of the Trump era. And like this specific thing that's happening right now in the White House, this scandal. And then you're like, well, well this film was made, like written four years ago and filmed three years ago mm-hmm. and market, you know, and, and there's no way they could have like anticipated this. So... Mm-hmm you kind of get these instances where you kind of just have to connect a film to a moment and if it works it works if it doesn't and I think this film his whole thing was like I want to make it as specific as possible Mm. I want to be referencing companies and specific authors and specific books and link it to a moment so it can have a kind of ongoing relevance in that way as almost a kind of historical thing rather than like trying to make it more broad but make it more like um, relatable or like um, mm-hmm. um, you know a- about the moment so um, he says it in, your, in the interview with you doesn't he that film as a medium is almost, almost cannot be content because content has to be delivered in a stream so TV series or, or music or anything when it's this constant flow of information is what is content whereas film as a discrete object in his definition, cannot therefore be turned into content. And I suppose that's what you're, you're getting at there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But I think it just makes it, all of the discourse here feel a bit out of date, where it's presented almost as a revelation that people are reading books on smartphones and tablets and not e-readers. That feels elite five years out of date. Mm-hmm. Yes, But I, I think also it's... it's yeah, it does def- definitely feel a bit outdated, but also you have to keep in mind that in France, I don't know about the book industry, but the film industry is uh, for filmmakers is just so much healthier because of all these regulations mm. against digital content right. and like the theatrical windows are mm. way the time a film comes on cinemas you can only see it in uh, Netflix like months and months later, it's huge. So I think to have a director being even able to able to make a film about this is like a sign of like a pretty healthy industry mm-hmm. uh, for film industry in France. Which I so I think it's like it might feel a bit like outdated and also like oh why is he complaining about this stuff that everyone's like we're all up to date you know this is you know progress evolution we have to adapt but it's also like his literal life and his livelihood and I, I think it's brilliant that we that he has a voice and that he's able to make these films like that's the thing when you mentioned that if this film was done here people would be like oh what a smug dude you know like yeah definitely but also I mean directing is is a I guess a bit of a smug thing to do because it's like a very selfish thing to do and I mean it's like art it's not like content you're not thinking I don't think he's ever thinking about viewers and what they're gonna think you know when he makes his movies and that's what's so brilliant I mean, we're going to talk about this in the next one as well, but they're like, he makes these films and then 
he leaves them to do what you want with them, which is brilliant, which is the opposite of content. Yeah, I think that crystallizes a, a key difference between British and, and French filmmaking and our approach to those films. It's he, and he is such a good like mm. catalyst for those conversations, and we'll continue with that conversation in film club shortly. But let's put some scores on this, David, for nonfiction. Well, I'm just a big fan of of, of Asias and. Uh, I'd probably say fours across the board on this one. I really liked it. I'd happily watch it again. I often find myself coming back to his films. And mm-hmm. he's also got a film from 2008 called Summer Hours, which I think if you like this film, definitely worth like revisiting that one as well. Great. Eleanor? I think I would probably say the same. I have to say, when I first watched the film, I was a bit confused. But I was like, why is this film like uh, just about a debate about art and like publishing? But actually, yeah, I mean, our conversation and just thinking about it and seeing all the changes happening in the film industry are probably in the publishing industry as well. I think it kind of justifies its existence and mm-hmm. makes it even more interesting. Like At the same time as it might feel a bit dated, it also is a good way to like register the fact that there was another way of making books and also films, I guess, before all this. I might give this 3-3-2. Three, three, uh, I, there's something about his style of filmmaking that really puts me off, but the cast are so watchable, and I, and I do enjoy talking about these films with with you two. Uh, oh. <laughs> anyway, go and see Zombieland Double Tap and Nonfiction, and let us know what you think. But before we move on to Film Club, David, we should talk about General Magic and set up your interview. So yeah, General Magic. It's a film out this week. It's a documentary. I think it's available on streaming. It's definitely on iTunes from this Friday. Yeah, it's this film about this uh, tech startup from the 90s and it sort of charts their rise and fall. As I said, they were some of the innovators of touchscreen technology and very much a sort of antecedent to some of the technology that millions and millions of people use today, like iPhones and iPods. Mm-hmm. I don't know if people use iPods. I think, still. well, there's some people who's. St- uh, oh, yeah. Producer Ian is just uh, waving us through the, the booth there saying that he has two. He has one spare in his desk. Oh, okay. Well, you know, they're, they're still out there. But, um, you know, obviously these massive sort of general, you know, epochal technological um, advances. And um, it's a fun film. And, and we interviewed this guy called Tony Fadell, who is the iPod inventor, iPhone co inventor. He is the founder of a company called Nest and also is a principal at a company called Future Shape, which do green energy and uh, consulting and things like that, and was the inventor of uh, this device called the Magic Link, which basically crashed and burned because the uh, the market wasn't quite ready for it. Imagine an iPhone at a time when nobody was using emails, MP3s didn't exist, and nobody had, was using text messages. There was no market for it at that time, but obviously he was able to kind of parlay his technological know-how into these other things. So, yeah, we just uh, picked up the conversation about uh, his work there. General Magic was at a moment in time, and we were all, like, working together, and we were starting to do, like, the first sets of international email because we were working with international teams. So, yeah, it was very, very fun interesting time and you know we had great times on the ipod we had great times on the iphone um nest and us but it was a very different thing because it was all our own little nugget right we could keep it really secret and everything else ipod was like that but it was in a big structure this was all our own it was like our own little baby one of the things about general magic which is really interesting which I, you know i'd love to know if it's something that, that that you've experienced elsewhere is this idea of like on one side you're your tech people, your programming, your engineering, 
but then also there's a sense that you're also artists as well. You are really interested in the artistry of, of what you were doing and, and sometimes got a bit carried away with it as well. Sure, absolutely. And, absolutely. And, and how important is that artistic element? Well, I think art comes in different forms. You know, one thing that we all did at General Magic, it wasn't in the film, but we all had titles beyond the function we did. So, like, my title was Silicon Sorcerer. So everybody had another magician kind of, like, title that was more magic-related or artist-related. And so we all believed that we were creating art. And art can come through code. Art can come through the documentation. It can come in many different forms. And so we were all treated as such. And that was wonderful because that carried on into how we did things moving, you know, moving ahead. And I think that was really born out of what um, Steve Jobs tried to do with the original Mac team, where Andy and Bill and Joanna and, and Susan and all these different people were treated like artists. And so they wanted to continue to treat the project as well as the people on the team like artists. And that gives you a whole different thing that you're not just a cog in the machine. And this is true craft and it can be passed down. So I was looking at, you know, working for my heroes, working with my heroes, but learning the craft the way they did it, right? The, the absolute masters. I've got one more question for you. I'd love to have a bit of insight from you on, you, you obviously have worked on the iPod and you've you know, work, worked towards revolutionizing the way that people in, around the world listen to music. As someone who has that ability to kind of peek just over the horizon, what are your insights into the way that people watch films and how that's going to change? Is that something that you're interested in? Well, I'm always interested in, in where society is going for consumption of different things. Music is one of them. Music is really near and dear to my heart, and I think about it all the time. Movies as well. And um, we've been going to this kind of individualistic, there's no set schedule where we have a kind of a, a social time where everybody in the unless it's a live event, you know, some sporting event or some news event. We don't have this time where we're all waiting, except maybe for a movie release, which is the, a beautiful thing, is when a movie releases and everyone's lined up and there's, it's in the things, and I hope we don't lose that. Because you're seeing more and more of it day and date. Now people are saying, we're gonna start streaming it, and maybe it's gonna turn more like live events. And so I'm hopeful that, just like when live events and and you have a, a big football or rugby match and everybody gets together for a party to have that, maybe there's gonna be much more social bonding as opposed to we're just gonna watch it on our little screen. There's gonna be much more of that special championship kind of like atmosphere for every movie release that's really important. That's really interesting to hear you say that. As someone who, you know, the iPod is the kind of ultimate sort of personal interaction with music and to hear you say that you're championing the kind of the live aspect of cinema is, Maybe unexpected. You can always ex have that experience to take with you all the time, whether that's music or, or film, documentaries, whatever, and you can enjoy it in your own time or, or re-watch it in a different way. But that social experience of bonding and saying we were there together at that concert when so-and-so did this, or when the movie came out and did that, when it's, it's really a social bonding, a community bonding thing, that's still incredibly important, and I hope we get more of those because we don't have enough of those we're losing more and more of those over time, and I hope we're going to have more and more of those kinds of events to bring us all together so that we stay a physical connected, not just virtually connected, uh, set of communities and societies.
And that was a clip from David's conversation with Tony Fidel, who's one of the talking heads in General Magic, which is on out on streaming this yeah. week, he said. Great. Up next, we have Film Club, which is another Olivia Essayas film. It's Irma Vep. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. A lot can happen in three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well. HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello HelloFresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. For his sixth film as director, Olivier Assayas turned his attentions to the French film industry for Irma Vep. Written in 10 days and shot in less than a month, Irma Vep sees Maggie Chung playing herself, coming to Paris to star in a remake of Louis Fayard's silent era serial Les Vampires. But she soon finds herself in the maelstrom of inflated egos and petty squabbles that make up a film set. And Zoe? Are you friends with Zoe? Oh, yeah. Uh, she takes care of me and I think she's a great person. Yes, she makes very good costumes. Mm, yeah. Do you like your costume? Yes. Zoe told me you want to buy it. Oh. <laughs> you really want to buy it? Is it true? <laughs> because if you don't buy it, I will buy it. Well, it's not your size. <laughs> I can have it fixed. I like latex. Latex? Yes. Latex? Like plastic. Oh, rubber. Yes, rubber yeah. also. It's very sexy. Mm-hmm. A clip from Irma Vep there. I hadn't seen this film before. It was a first watch for me, but I'd, I'd known it mainly because of Maggie Chung in that cat suit and that amazing scratchy handwritten title treatment. Elena, did you know this film beforehand? Uh, no, I did. I mean, I knew of it, but mm-hmm. I hadn't seen it. So this was a first for me. And? I really liked it, but I have to say, yeah, it's. I'm a bit not confused by it but just um, it's really strange actually because I don't know what it really amounts to but it's so beautifully shot that I first of all I was just really impressed by the cinematography there are all these really like elaborate long takes Mm. that that just go through rooms and things and there are about 12 characters at the same time because it's a film set and uh, that alone was fascinating but um, also just there are a few characters that are recurrent characters involved in the story and they're all so kind of amazingly well written uh, because they're all people who work in on a film uh, so there's the costume designer there's the director played by Jean-Pierre Léo um, and they're all just very um, fun and mm-hmm. uh, very interesting I guess what was really interesting about the movie is because it's on a film set everyone's really stressed out and everyone's really intense and trying to do their thing but obviously 
getting orders from all sides at the same time. So they all look a bit insane. But at the same time, obviously, it's real like that. And also they're French, so obviously they're crazy. <laughs> uh, but so you have that element of like, at the same time, it's quite realistic. But at the same time, it's really fun to watch because these people are being a bit crazy trying to make a movie. So I don't know. Yeah, from that, just that alone is, is really amazing. Like It's beautiful and the actors are great and it's really funny. But I think David probably has more to say about did, that. Did you film. see this at the time, David? Or was this, was this, have you seen this earlier than, no. than today? I think I saw it in the early noughts first right. time and was was really baffled by it, to be honest. <laughs> like, I don't want to repeat myself from what I said about nonfiction, but it, feel, it feels like, or like a very, very similar film in a way mm. in that it's kind of... But it also proves my point about this idea of specificity of subject matter still retaining relevance when you are so specific about things, even though there are all these references to, like, 90s film and characters discussing Tarantino and John yeah. Wu and things like that the ideas of what journalists are thinking about and what act and how our actors are kind of responding to journalists are still you know that sort of essence of that is very very interesting but watching it again recently I was sort of really struck by this idea of like I think if I had to pick like one film which represented the 90s <laughs> I think this would be it this feels like absolute peak 90s in that it's kind of looking at where the cinema was, where culture was, looking at globalisation. The sort of vague story is you have this old French director who's sort of beloved and he has this kind of... His idea is he wants to remake Le Vampire, the, mm-hmm. the sort of 1919 serial by Louis Fouillard. Fouillard. But his decision is that he wants to cast Maggie Chung as Irma Vep, who is this iconic character played by Isadora in mm. the in the original you know he's seen Maggie Chung in all these like samurai films and and like fantasy kung fu films and uh, there is a sort of like erotic element that he's just completely been bewitched by her and maybe can't see the sense of why that might not be a good idea of fusing mm. these two kind of cultures and there are a lot of people who think it's a bad idea because it's like desecrating mm. this like French classic and mm. and Maggie Chung is very like it's I think she's incredible in the film because it's one of the great films about how disconnected an actor is from from the material and from the bureaucracy like she's obviously kind of being impacted by decisions that are made and like having to wait on set and having to go places and meet these new people but there is this whole kind of storm raging and that she's just sort of slightly out of earshot and She's just there to do her job and get paid and hopefully expand her own portfolio into kind of European or English language cinema and, you know, become a bigger star. So you've just got all these various little stories going on and um, it just looks at kind of globalisation mm-hmm, and mm-hmm. co-productions and the sort of death of the auteur or this kind of new wave of like studios, production, mechanised filmmaking and... Uh, one of the things I love about this film, which I, I'm not even sure I know why I love it, is the final shots where you have this, like, what is it, like 30 seconds a minute of, like, mm. scratchy footage mm-hmm. of Vep um, walking around in her kind of PVC catsuit. And, you know, the actual kind of celluloid has been scratched and it looks like it's been damaged or something, but it's this absolutely beautiful, completely bewitching segment at the end of the film that's kind of even when you're sort of doing something wrong, it can be right. Mm. Or 
it always sort of comes as a surprise and I'm always kind of blown away mm. by it. It is a hard one to get your head around. For me, when nonfiction felt like an old man yelling at the cloud, this is a younger man with his passion for the, the art form is spilling out in all directions. And it's that fact that the film is in dialogue in that moment that I probably call scuzzy art house in the 90s, where there's this sense of tradition, this sense of the art form, but also the, the melding of high and low forms of art and the presence of Maggie Chung coming off her Hong Kong martial arts work. This is years before In the Mood for Love. Uh, I mean, she had done, was she had been in As Tears Go By by this point? Yeah. She worked with Wong Kar Wai before, of course, but... Um, but she was mainly known for these kind for of... For Supercop and things yeah, like that. Yeah, 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 and uh, like these Troy Huck films yeah. and, and things like that, where she's basically playing like, you know, it's like Wuja, you know, like yeah. flying kung fu movies. It really surprised me that she speaks English with an English accent, yeah. um, because she studied both school and uni in the UK, ah. which mm-hmm. I didn't know. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. I actually, I agree with what you're saying. Like, um, thinking about it now, it just feels like a film from a director. I think he was in his 30s then, like he was quite young. Um, and it's this movie about, he loves the process of making the film as much as he loves the films. And I love the, the way you're, we are with these people who are very, you know, strung out and very stressed trying to make a movie for like the most of the film and at the end with this sequence it just opens up in like this pure sort of abstract art thing and so it's it's just great to see you can do both like Mm -hmm. you can be both like trying to just do your job and like I'm making the costume I'm doing this I'm doing that and at the end the result is just something it's not content again Mm -hmm. (laughs) it's just art Thank you so much for saying that 30s is still quite young Eleanor I'm going to take that home with me (laughs) (laughs) Well for a director at least I think for everyone, thirties can still be quite young. People. Thank you. That's the right <laughs> answer. Anyway, listeners, if you watch Irma Vep or any of the films we discussed this week, let us know at the usual channels at Truth and Movies on Twitter, Truth and Movies at tcolondon.com via email, and of course, there's the comment section at slash podcast Next week, we'll be back with Terminator: Dark Fate. Linda Hamilton, she's due a yeah. resurgence, right? We have The Beach Bum, the new film from Harmony Corinne. And for Film Club, we're going to revisit one of James Cameron's few flops, which is The Abyss. I'm a fan. Oh, you're a fan of The Abyss? I'm a fan of The Abyss. I have not seen it. Oh, well, you'll have to send in your your comments if you do watch it. Eleanor, David, thank you so much for joining me this week. Thank you. I'm Michael Eder, and as always, this has been a 7 Digital production. up what was that boring no flavor that was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week kiki palmer here and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free hello fresh jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. now that's music to my mouth hello fresh let's get this dinner party started discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com planning for your next trip Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.